Sorry, I was getting myself ready there. Good morning. My name is uh, my name is Jared. It's a, an honor, a privilege to be with you this morning. We're trucking through Matthew's gospel. That's what we do as a church. We work our way through books of the Bible. And um, I, I just want to start here. There is a better way of living. There is a better way of believing. There is a better way of navigating our way in the world. And this better way is available to us. It's available to us. But our instincts often kind of fight at it. This better way, it's not intuitive. Sometimes we're clumsy with it. It feels foreign. It feels upside down. It's way easier said, the better way is, than lived. The better way is this way available to us of our world's true king. The better way is the way that this king in our world conducts himself in his world, because really it's his. It's his world that he made and that he rules. And this king's better way completely shapes the way of his kingdom. And as we start to get the better way in our view, if we just take a moment, we begin to think about it, we begin to analyze the headlines around us, and we begin to analyze what's happening in our world, you'll see and you'll feel, even within your own heart, but you'll certainly see it in the world around us, that our world aches, I mean aches, for a better way. And you'll see quickly that humanity needs an abundance of help. We've really gotten ourselves into a predicament. And we're struggling to find our way out of it. And I think as we read the headlines, as we face kind of the evil in our world and the unfairness and the injustice in our world, we'll start to recognize that we're actually pretty low creatures, aren't we? Sure, there's beauty. There's for sure beauty and people are good to one another and there's an abundance of pain and an abundance of confusion. We crave fairness and we're quite unfair to one another, both in interpersonal relationships and in governments and in societies. We crave peace in the world and unity among people. We crave that. It's a stated goal of ours, and yet we're often uh, far more focused on making sure that our rights are protected, even if it means that the rights of other people are violated. We have a lot to say about murder, the murder of innocence in our world until it infringes on the right to murder in the womb. I could go on, and you could go on. I see this, and you see this too, a profound and deep craving in the hearts of humanity that just cries out, it shouldn't be like this. This is unfair. Things are unfair. 
We're in a text in Matthew today, in Matthew chapter 19, we'll start in verse 27, but we'll go through chapter 20, verse 16 this morning, that I think has something to say about this unfairness, about the way that we show up in the world, and particularly about the better way of the King who has created all things. So turn in your Bibles in Matthew, if you would, to chapter 19, verse 27. This is the tail end of where we were last week. There's black Bibles around the room. If you're new with us, grab one of those. We want you to be interacting with the Scriptures and and opening them and reading them for yourself and questioning them and applying them. To your life. Matthew chapter, 20, or chapter 19, verse 27. This is uh, right after Jesus has had an encounter with a rich young man who was in charge of a good number of people, and Jesus invited this man to sell all that he had and to give away what he had. And then Jesus invited this man to follow him, and the man couldn't see it. He couldn't do it. He loved his gold more than he loved his God in this moment. And, and then it turns to Jesus teaching the disciples, and then Peter has a question for Jesus. Peter is the foremost of these disciples, works as kind of a spokesman among this band of 12 disciples. And, and Peter, in verse 27, says to Jesus in reply, See, we have left everything, and we have followed you. What then will we have? And Jesus said to them, to Peter and to the disciples, Truly I say to you, in the new world, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, You who have followed me will also sit on 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. Notice this phrase, but many who are first will be last and the last will be first. Chapter 20, verse 1. Now Jesus means to teach and to illustrate this. He says, for the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers for a denarius, that's a day's wage, a denarius per day, he sent them out into his vineyard. And going out about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them, he said, you go into the vineyard too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And Jesus said to them, or, or rather the, the, the master of the house said to them, Why do you stay, stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyard too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers, pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. Notice that phrase. And when those about the 11th hour, who who were hired about the 11th hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now, those hired, when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius, a day's wage. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house saying, These last, they worked only one hour, and you've made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But the master of the house replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? 
So the last will be first and the first last. This is God's word. Praise be to God. Pray with me. Father, would you illuminate what's happening in this passage, what it teaches about how your kingdom operates? Would you make it clear to us? Would we encounter you this morning in new ways? Would we, would we be comforted by you? Would we be confronted by you? Would we be consoled and taught by you? So help us to, to open our minds to you and our hearts to you and our hands to you. In Jesus' name, amen. This passage that we're in, uh, I believe uh, it, it wants us, it's the word of God, the word of God, God himself wants us to see that God has a better way. And the question for us is, will we embrace it ourselves? Will we embrace his better way? His way is exceedingly generous. His way is generous to both the just and the unjust. His way is generous to both the righteous and the unrighteous. God's generous way is not fair, nor is it deserved. God's generous way is grace. There is no way to earn something that cannot be earned from another person, particularly God. And God's grace is not the kind of grace, it's not like the kind of grace that we would come up with on our own either. It's, it's far, far better. And God's desire for us is that we would take on his better way, that we would seek to make it ours, like a, like a, a, a young child who aims to, to walk in the footsteps of their dad or their mom. But I think there's this question for us that really, it begs an answer, but how do we actually take on the better way? How do we lean into the better way? It requires something significant of us. What does it require of us? What do you think it requires of us to begin to take on a first step and a daily step in taking on this better way? It requires of us that we die to ourselves. Requires of us that we die to ourselves. This is what Jesus means by taking up our cross in order to follow him, that we would deny ourselves, and to deny ourselves is actually to die to ourselves. Earlier, where am I getting this from? Earlier in Matthew chapter 16, there's this powerful exchange between Jesus and between his disciple Peter. And Peter is actually standing before Jesus. And Peter is trying to talk Jesus out of the cross. No, that's not the way for you, Jesus. I've got a better way for you. Don't do it. And Jesus quickly turns that on its head and confronts Peter in this moment. And he says, Peter, you don't know what you're prescribing to me. You have no idea. You have your way, your will in front of me and you. You don't have my way in front of you. And he actually he says, get behind me, Satan. He says, you're more, Peter, aligned with the way of Satan, God's enemy, than you are with the will of God himself and the mind of God himself. And then right after that, Jesus turns to all of the disciples and he says in Matthew 16, 24 and 25, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, let him take up his cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Now, 
Shortly after this, after this teaching, deny yourselves, take up your cross and follow me, the disciples, they encounter this young boy who has epilepsy and he is possessed by a demon. He is demonically possessed. And this demon in this young boy is using this young boy's epilepsy. So he has both a disease and a demon, and he's using this epilepsy and exploiting it to harm this boy. And this boy's father comes to these disciples. Jesus is away at the time, and they ask the disciples to try to cast this demon out, and they're not able. And come to find out, they had been trusting in their own strength. They're trying deliverance ministry without dependent prayer. They had some dying to self yet to do, and Jesus was teaching them in that moment as he was able to cast this demon out and heal this boy entirely. He was teaching them that they had to die to their prayerlessness. And a bit later in chapter 18, the disciples, they're competing for this position of greatness in Jesus's kingdom. And Jesus snuffs out their competition with this challenge. And he challenges them to die to their adult and their, their very adult and worldly vision of greatness and to become like children in how they relate to God. And so Jesus was teaching them to die to their worldly craving for greatness. How do we follow Jesus? How do we take on the better way? It's through dying to self. Just a bit later in chapter 18, he's teaching these disciples about their sin and its power over us and its cost to us. And Jesus challenges these disciples to cut off the sin in their lives, to to kill literally their sin cravings that threaten their very souls with hell. He's teaching the disciples to to die to their craving for sin. Then, moving forward in chapter 18, verse 15, the disciples are taught about forgiveness and about the power of forgiveness. And again, they're challenged to die to themselves and to embrace those who sin against them however many times it takes. So Jesus is teaching the disciples to die to their unforgiveness. Then in chapter 19, these Pharisees, the the religious rulers, they, they had political sway, and certainly religious sway among the people. These Pharisees, they come up to Jesus in order to trap him and in order to, um, to distort the, 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 the longing of the people. Like Jesus is being followed by the people. The people are clamoring to get to Jesus. And these Pharisees, they want to set him up in front of the people, make him stumble so that they can diminish his influence among them. And Jesus challenges these Pharisees to die to themselves to die to their hard-heartedness that breaks up their marriages and harms their families and their wives and kids. And then, just last week, Jesus challenges this wealthy young man who had power over some people around him to die to the pull of his possessions and his craving for wealth, but the man could not imagine such a great loss nor could he see the invitation that was in front of him, the opportunity that had been extended to him. Jesus, God himself, the Messiah, was literally standing before this man, offering him an apprenticeship. And the man couldn't see it. 
And after that exchange, that's where we picked up in this passage today, Peter replies, what about us, Jesus? We've done what you said. We've left all that we had in order to accept your invitation. And here we are, your apprentices. We're here, Jesus. And Jesus would say to them in Matthew chapter 19, verses 29 through 30, and everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or a father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold, will be provided for, and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. And that line right there connects to Matthew chapter 20 and the passage that we're in this morning. It's going to show up two more times in Matthew chapter 20. Now, I've talked a lot, and Jesus apparently has been talking a lot about dying to ourselves. And the better way that he offers us is not just about dying to ourselves, but it always starts with dying to ourselves. What the better way is ultimately about is living for our king and trusting him extensively with the details of our lives, with the ordinary stuff and the big stuff, the stuff that feels a little inconsequential but still touches on something in, in us, and the stuff that just rattles us. All of it. But our inwardness and our focus on ourselves and our focus on what's fair to us must die in order for the king's way to have its way in you and I. In order for the patient to live, to truly live, the cancer must die. It must be cut out. I can hear the anxiety in Peter's question. What about us, Jesus? Can you hear some of the anxiety in in Peter's question? We've left everything. We've, We've left it all in order to follow you, and what then will we have? Because I don't know if you've noticed, Jesus, but it's not going super well for us. We're we're, we're asking other people to provide for us. We're a bit homeless. We're pretty broke. We're traveling from place to place. People are challenging us. People are needing from us. And we don't have a whole lot of security. We certainly don't have worldly possessions and a place to retreat to. And so the question is sort of this, is there, is there some life and reward at the end of this, Jesus? Because right now, it just feels really hard. Right now, it feels difficult. We can't feel, we can't see the reward. And Jesus answers Peter and these disciples with this assurance that God will indeed provide abundantly for his people. God's generosity is not like ours. It is far better. Jesus is going to illustrate this through a parable. And so I want us to go back to this parable, and, and then we're going to see some lessons. And I've just got five lessons for us. So we'll learn from the parable, and then we will look at some of these lessons. Parables are one of Jesus' very favorite ways to, cheat, to teach. About a third of the red letters in your Bible, about a third of Jesus' teaching in your Bible, is made up of, of parables. One thing to know about parables, what they are is they are a small kind of earthy story with a heavenly meaning or lesson. You could think of a parable like a little story with a really big moral idea. Parables are regularly teaching about what God is like and about what life in his kingdom is like. 
But one thing, if you're a student of your Bible, and I hope that you are, if you're a student of God's Word, one thing to know about parables and interpreting them is that if we try to press parables and the details in them for meaning, every little detail, if we're trying to press it all out for meaning, it's going to lead us to some pretty wonky places and weird theology. Parables aren't like allegories. Allegory, all of the different parts and pieces and details have meaning to them and they all come together to form a picture, but parables aren't like that. Parables always have a big idea that we're trying to hook and and hang truth on, but the details are always in service of that big idea, and so we can't just press every single detail in a parable for meaning. Sometimes they do provide meaning, but more often than not, they're there to support the main point. And this, uh, this, this parable of the kingdom, it's meant to show us what God's kingdom is like and specifically how the king operates in his kingdom, how he treats the undeserving. This parable is showing us a picture of how God treats the undeserving. And we're going to see that in verse 1. Look at verse 1. For the kingdom of heaven is like. Okay, he's teaching us something. What's it like, Jesus? It's like a master who went out to find laborers for his vineyard. This is interesting. Some theologians think that what Jesus is doing here is he's talking to primarily a Jewish audience. Israel is equated with God's vineyard. God is the vine dresser. Israel are the special called out people among the nations. They are God's vineyard. And so some theologians believe that the way that the laborers kind of shake up and the order that they come forward in this parable has something to teach us about how God will graft in Gentiles, graft in non-Jews, non-Hebrews into his kingdom people. And I think there's certainly a truth there. So, there's some of that nuance going on behind the scene here. But this, this master of the house, he goes out to find these laborers for his vineyard. And he goes into the marketplace early about the time of a Jewish work day at that time. It was about 6 a.m. and it would end at about 6 p.m. So it's about a 12-hour day. And he went to find these workers and he found some at 6 a.m. And he agreed, they, they struck up a deal and, and they agreed on a full day's wage for their labor. It was fair. And away they went. And apparently this master of the house, he wanted more laborers, so he came later at the third hour. The the Jewish third hour is 9 a.m., and then he'd come back at the ninth hour. But these folks on the third hour here at 9 a.m. notice that Jesus, or rather the master of the house, did not, they didn't settle on a price. He just said, whatever's fair, I'll give to you. And they took him at his word. This is a trust me moment for them. They took him at his word, this master of the house, and and they said, all right, we'll go. And then this master comes back three more times. He comes at the sixth hour, which is noon. He comes at the ninth hour, which is 3 p.m. And then he comes back at the 11th hour. That's where we get our phrase. Last minute, it's the 11th hour. We get it from this parable, most likely. Uh, He comes back at the 11th hour, which is 5 p.m. There's only one hour left in the work day. And when evening comes, this master, he tells his foreman, he says, hey, call in all of the laborers and pay them, but I want you to do it in a special way. I want you to start with those who work just one hour. I want you to start with the last, and then I want you to pay them up to the first. There's that phrase, the last will be first and the first will be last. And so beginning with those last ones who were hired, the foreman starts to pay them. And he pays these one-hour workers a full denarius, a full day's wage. 
pretty generous. They're in there like, I want to get in on that. They're in there for one hour, and they get a full day's wage. But those who had been there all day, the all-day workers, they saw the payment. They saw it come down the line. And verse 10 tells us that when they saw this, they thought to themselves that they would receive more. I could, can you understand that? I can understand that. Like I used to serve tables, and it was like in the old days, almost the 1900s, just after the 1900s and the 2000s, and uh, I used to serve tables, and it was like low-tech, uh, paper tickets and stuff like that in that day, and, and if we'd be working a big table, there'd be two of us working a big table, and if I'd see them slip, you know, the waitress alongside me or waiter alongside me, a big tip, I'd think, oh, I'm probably going to get in on that, or I wonder if they've got one for me. Like, just had those experiences often. And I think if we're all honest, we do too. It just is very natural for us to go, if they got that, then it's going to be good for me. Verses 11 and 12. But when they received what they and the master had agreed on for their work, they grumbled at the master and they said, it's not fair. These last ones, they worked only one hour. And you've made them equal to us. You've elevated them to our status, and we're the ones who have borne the burden of the day and the heat of the day. We've done all the work. That's what they're getting at. Look at how the master responds. Look at his first word, verse 13. First word, friend. I've done you no wrong. I've done you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for your payment? This is what we agreed on. What you are getting is completely fair. Now, I want us to remember for just a moment that the the master of this house represents the kingdom of God. This parable is meant to show us what the king of the kingdom is like. The king has a better way. This master of the house, right out of the gates, he calls this grumbling, malcontented worker here, the first word he says is friend. This worker has no claim on the master. He's a laborer. He's not a friend. He's a day laborer. He's only a friend if the master makes him a friend. But it seems that in this parable, the master of the house is going, friend, opening this door to ongoing relationship, opening this door to ongoing employment, opening it. So not only does the master hire the day laborer, which is a benefit and a grace, this guy's hanging out in the marketplace hoping for work. The master shows up and gives him work. He wasn't obligated to do that. So the fact that he got hired in the first place is grace. And he got paid fairly is grace. He calls him his friend. And then he corrects him gently. I love the way of Jesus. We had an agreement and both of us kept our pledge. And he goes, it shouldn't be a great concern of yours if I give what I agreed to give to you and then I give to another person differently. Verse 15, am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Am I allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? I think that's a good question. Mark, catch this. What is that? That's my wallet. Yes or no question. 
There's a $50 bill in the front of that wallet. Do you have a right to do whatever you want with that $50 bill? Yes or no? Throw it back to me. What is this? A wallet, right? Whose wallet is this? There's a... <laughs> nah, Meredith goes, mine! There's a... <laughs> that was good, babe. <laughs> we are one flesh. There is... We learned that a couple of weeks ago, too. There, uh, there is a $50 bill in the front of this wallet. Do I have a right to do with whatever I, whatever I choose with the $50? Why? Because it's mine. This worker, this master of the house is saying, do I not have a right to do what I choose with what is mine? This is highlighting the sovereign freedom of God. God is God and there is no other. Will you who are created speak back to God and say, this is not fair? Does the clay have a right to say to the potter, why have you made me like this? God is free to deal with his creation as he pleases. And this is where we see a thing under the thing. He goes, or do you begrudge my generosity? This verse, you'll notice it in the footnotes of your Bible. Um, this can be translated in a really peculiar way. There was a saying in Jesus' day about having an evil eye. And I don't, it doesn't totally translate to us in our cultural day. But the, the idea is literally, do you begrudge my generosity is, is your eye evil? And that kind of, I'm like, I don't, I, don't, I don't get how the two things work together. But the study notes and the ESV study Bible illuminated this for me. In other words, are you so blinded by your own self-interest that you completely overlook the benefit that your co-laborer has just received? Your neighbor has just received. You're so concerned with yourself, you can't celebrate him. You're so concerned with yourself, you can't celebrate the benefits that she is receiving you're competing. You're not commending. You're condemning. You're not complimenting. And I think this is exactly what the Apostle Paul was talking about in Philippians 2, verse 3, when he said, church, he's writing to the church. He's saying, believers, followers of Jesus, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. If we stop right there, that's a pretty heavy law. If it's up to you and I to develop the humility that we need in order to put others first and take the second place, to put others first and to take the last place, then that is a heavy weight that will feel good initially, but will over time crush us. But Paul doesn't start there. That's called an imperative. It's a command. He's saying, church, this is how you live. But Paul always connects his imperatives, these commands, to indicatives indicating what Jesus has done for us. And so Paul says, let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind. Have the mind of Christ among yourselves it's yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus has given us a new mind. He's created in his followers a new heart. He's given us his spirit to lead us 
forward and to empower us. And so Jesus is this king of a better way. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. This is the better way. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself. He took the form of a servant. And being found in or born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient, even all the way to the point of death, even death on a cross. He made himself last. Therefore, God has made him first. Therefore, God has highly exalted Christ and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God. This is God's word to us. Jesus literally denied, literally died to himself for the glory of his Father, and for something too. What? Our redemption. Our freedom. Opening up a new and better way through the cross and resurrection. And that was his joy. His joy was to draw us in. The 11th hour ones. The workers who weren't really, aren't really worth our wages. And his design is to draw us in. He held nothing back, but instead gave everything, even his own life, even his blood, in order to bring us in, in order to make us his family. Is there a better example of looking out for the interests of others? That you would go to your own death in order to set them free. The beauty of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is that he... he what. All that Jesus Christ has earned has been credited to each one of us. And all that we have done to squander and to soil the image of God in us has now been shouldered by Jesus Christ himself. A.W. Tozer said the only sin Jesus ever had was ours. And the only righteousness that we'll ever have is his. There's just no better news available to you or I than this. God doesn't owe you or I anything, but he offers us everything. So pause in this moment and reflect. Can you believe that this is what we get when hell is what we deserve? It's incredible. He's not a figment of our imaginations. He is the king of kings who reigns over all. And he is present in this room with his people. And he is present out there with his people. Eternally, the God who is with us. There are some significant things for us to see throughout this parable. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to name five briefly. And you'll see more, I guarantee it. But I just want us to see these five things in the parable. Number one, God is very generous. He is very generous. He is glad to give grace to the undeserving. This is what the whole Bible is actually about. God has graciously created. We have ungratefully rebelled. 
God is graciously pursuing a whole multitude of people, numberless, too many for any of us to count, in order to do what? In order to redeem them, us, from lawlessness. In order to call out and to find those who will die to themselves in order to live for this better way. And the better way is the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. Number two, so one, God is very generous. Number two, God owes you and I nothing. He he does not owe us. He is not in our debt. Yet when things don't go our way or according to our prayers, we have a tendency, we'll probably be very hesitant to say this out of our mouths, but in our hearts and in our thought life, we are very quick often to put God on trial. Why have you done it like this? I don't like it. I don't get it. I wouldn't do it this way. I know I'm mad at you. I'm going to pull away from you, God, because of the way that you have done it. To stand in the place of judging God is a fearful place to stand. And there is no one in this room or outside of this room or on this sphere of the earth who is qualified to judge him, to begrudge his generosity. God is generous. He owes us nothing. Number three, humble gratitude is the right response to this parable. Humble gratitude is the right response to the way of the king. Jesus' mom, his mother, a woman named Mary, had this best, the, the best response when she was faced with some really surprising news, to say the least. Betrothed to her husband, had not yet been with him, still a virgin. The Holy Spirit says, you're carrying a child now, and it's not just any child, it's the Messiah of the whole world. This is going to change things for her, particularly making things difficult for her in her young years with this child, Jesus. Because she would be ostracized and turned out by her community, her village, her people, likely questioned by her family in very uncomfortable ways, potentially divorced even by her own husband, or one Joseph who was betrothed to her, and her response is, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Gratitude brings comfort and brings assurance. We did not deserve to be brought in. We do not deserve Gentiles to be grafted in to the nation of Israel or God's chosen people. Yet apart from anything that we did, good or bad, God has chosen you. Follower of Jesus, God has chosen you. Perhaps you're in this room and not following Christ. And perhaps he's speaking to you. Perhaps he's calling you to himself, choosing you. Will you respond? Will you respond to his voice to you this morning? God is very generous. He doesn't owe us anything. Humble gratitude is the right response to this parable. Number four, chosen ones, followers of Jesus. This is an invitation from the God who calls us friend to humbly repent of our grumbling and to die to ourselves. He doesn't owe us salvation. He doesn't owe us a place in his family. He doesn't owe us a seat at his table. And yet he has hired us. He has drawn us in. He has made us a people for his own possession. And so may we die to our begrudging. May we die to our grumbling. May we search our hearts for discontent. May we celebrate when others are brought in. 
when others get the win, when those who we don't necessarily think deserve it get the win, would our hearts and our minds and our spirits just rejoice at the fact that God redeems sinners of whom I am one. Paul would say, I'm the foremost. Envy is an assassin of our joy. Why them? Why them? Why them? Why them? But humble gratitude is a builder of our joy. And so I want to ask you this. Do you have eyes to see the way that God has been kind to you? Are you developing eyes to see the way that God has been kind to you? And if not, you might offer a prayer like this. Lord, I can't see it right now. I'm not there. Help my lack of sight. Cure my blindness. Help. Give me a grateful mind, a grateful heart in the suffering. Number five, and this is the last point where we'll end. Can you accept your position in life with a glad heart? The last will be first and the first will be last. God is free. God has ordered his, he has sovereignly ordered your story, your days, and he means to make something of them. He means to showcase his glory through you, through you, through the person in your skin sitting in your clothes right now, through you. Are you suffering? God is near to the brokenhearted. Following Jesus is an invitation to suffering. He did not bait and switch us. The record of his word is full of messed up humans making a calamity out of the world that we live in. It's full of unjust things happening to And yet, the story of redemption shows us that in the midst of our suffering, God is with us. And it is God who will make all of the sad things come untrue at the day of Jesus Christ. So, in that that word, take heart, because, yes, we will have trials, but the better king has overcome death and beaten his trial for us. He won't lose any of those who are his. And he promises that you and I too will beat Satan, sin, and death. And we will beat every trial that comes our way because the king of the better way, Christ, is with us and gives us new hearts that embrace his better way And he's given us his spirit who empowers his better way. And while it might not necessarily get easier in this life, he promises us healing and deliverance from the power and the penalty and the presence of sin forevermore when we meet him face to face. Do not lose heart. Pray with me. Lord, we come to you loving you 
with our hearts and our minds and our strength and our spirits. We come to you asking for comfort where where we so desperately need it. We come to you asking for more glad-hearted gratitude in our suffering, but also when things are up and to the right for us, when things are going well. We, Lord, want to be used by you for your glory. Help us to get there in our minds and in our hearts. Help us to glorify you with our stories, with our suffering, with our successes. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. As a church, we have an opportunity to respond to this in a couple of ways. Communion will come up in just a moment, but, but we as a church, Dave teased it a little bit earlier, we have a, a significant opportunity, this Giving Trees event that's coming up on Saturday, December 2nd, to move toward people in our community who need resourcing. These trees are an introduction to them. 300 of them, that's our plan, to go to Salem, Oregon, to a tree farm, and to pick up 300 live Douglas fir trees between five feet tall and nine feet tall, and to truck them back here at great cost to ourselves, and to set up an extravagant experience for people in our community, the under-resourced foster care families and single-parent homes and those who are just struggling a bit. This provides us an opportunity to, yes, brighten their homes with this reminder of a tree. You know the feeling when you walk into the living room or wherever that tree is and its glow is there early in the morning or late at night. You know the way that this feels Our hope as a church community is to bring hope to these families by bringing them into our lot here and creating an extravagant welcome for them by hearing their names and shaking their hands and spending time with them, by asking them if there is anything that we can do for them and ways, however it is, that we can pray for them. We're assembling a team of People who will welcome, people who will set up, people who will search them out, just search for opportunities to pray, people who will mingle and make new friends, people who will set up activities for the kids, people who will just help out. And what we need is for everyone in our community, there is a role for every single person in our community, a significant one, to play a part in this day, this Giving Trees event on Saturday, uh, December 2nd. It'll go all day. You can sign up in the morning. You can sign up for the afternoon. You can sign up for the whole thing. You can come early to set up. You can stay late to clean up. Many hands make lighter and more joyful work together. And so we're asking you to mark it on your calendar and to, and to figure out how it is that you can lean in and help to be a blessing to the people of our community. This gives us a touch point with 300 families in our region, very strategically. If you were here, who was here last year for it? Raise your hands. Was it a good time audibly? It was so much fun. The joy oftentimes comes in the giving, not in the receiving. And so it's our opportunity to do generously to the people around us. Why? Because the king of the better way has shaped us. Because the king of the better way is doing something in us. And we want to magnify his name 
in our community and offer hope to families in our community. So a call to action for you right now is through the app on your phone. We have a church app, or you can just hop onto our website. There is an events tab on our website. It'll take you to the very first event you'll see is Giving Trees, and that's a serve team registration page where you can hop in there, get all and more of the information that I just provided for you, and you can sign up to help and to serve on this day. And you can say, I want to be on these teams, or I only want to be on this team, or I can show up at this time. And here's a call for everybody in the whole church to jump in on. We need cookies. We need treats. So we're asking every single person in our community to bring a couple of dozen or more cookies. You don't have to bake them. That's not your jam. You can buy them. That's cool too. There's good ones out there. We're hoping to have 2,000 or more cookies where we can just like start, just send some treats home with people. We've got custom ornaments made for their tree that help to proclaim the hope of Christ. We're just here to serve them and to love them in Jesus' name. So they're not just coming in and getting a tree and like, hope it goes well, We're coming in, giving them a tree and saying, is there any way we can serve you? Can we tell you about Jesus? Can we pray for you? This is a wonderful opportunity. So would you engage that call to action, please, all of life? If you're here with us for the first time and you want to jump in on it, we would love to have you by all means.